Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back into another episode of The Buster Show. Today, we have the Air Jordan designer turned entrepreneur, Jason Maiden. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, man. This is a pleasure to be here. Really excited to you know, share a little bit of my journey with the audience. So I think the best way to start off might be uh, just to give a little baseline context to kind of your journey and my favorite part always, which is the beginning. So how did you first start along your entrepreneurial and business and world endeavors? Yes, yeah, a great question. I think a lot of people assume that entrepreneurship is this massive, you know, great, cool opportunity. It really isn't. It's, it's seizing the moment um, with the things that are in your environment. So for me, my first business was cutting grass and shoveling snow when I was 10 years old. Um, I quickly realized that it, I didn't like the cold weather growing up in Chicago and I had seasonal allergies. So I decided to employ my friends and I controlled, you know, the, the pricing and I controlled the, the contact or the CRM side of the business, knowing who to, who to serve. But essentially that was the first time I knew how to advocate for myself, negotiate, you know, um, look at supplies and inventory, hire and recruit. You had to compel people to come work for me considering they were my same age and we were kids. Um, and then accountability and follow through. Those are the things that I took from that basic job and applied it to everything I've done in life. Because, you know, greatness isn't doing one thing well once, it's doing small things well consistently. So when you have those habits and those disciplines and those behaviors and the small things, that's what sets you up for success with the big things. So, you know, I know when, we, when, I'm, when I was younger, I used to gripe about doing chores and, and the little things around the house. But now I realized that it gave me this, this muscle of accountability for my behavior. Um, and that's really the basis of entrepreneurship, man, is doing things that you may not feel like doing, but you know you have to in order to set the foundation of your future. Um, and so I just keep doing that and it compounds over time. I love that. So you think that doing some of those chores and some of the beginning gardening work built the foundation for discipline in general? A hundred percent. Yeah. So the reason why, and I tell my daughter this, I have two children, 16 year old and 12 year old. Um, we had kids, my wife and I very early, I wanted to, wanted to grow with them. But I tell my, my children, there are two types of people in the world, people who put the shopping cart back and then people who don't. And they laugh when I tell them that story and I explain to them, why do you think it's important to put the shopping cart back? And they'll look at me and they'll give me an answer. And then I'll finally tell them because no one else does. So you have to do the things no one else is willing to do in order to live the life that no one else can live. It's as simple as that. It's a sign of respect for yourself. It's a sign of self-discipline. It's a sign of follow through. It's a five second walk from your car to put the shopping cart back. But so many people decide to leave it right there and go on with their lives. What you do with the small things is how you handle the big things. So if you don't put the shopping cart back, you're probably not gonna proofread an email. You're probably gonna miss a deal point you're probably not going to be thorough with the work that you execute at the highest level. And so you build the cadence and the discipline of greatness by tackling the things that are small and seemingly insignificant with the same vigor. It's easy to get excited if somebody said, Jason, put the shopping cart back, or would you want to park a Tesla in a parking spot and hook it up to charge? Put the shopping cart back, or would you want to go hang out on All-Star Weekend? You see how I'll jump on parking a Tesla with the auto park, I'll jump on All-Star Weekend, because that's the quote-unquote attractive opportunity. Putting a shopping cart back isn't attractive. That's, the, that's where discipline kicks in. It's the ability to say no to stuff. It's the ability to do stuff even when you feel it's inconvenient. That's what helps you as an adult and that's what helps you as an entrepreneur. 
because not everything is going to be fun, but you still have to do it because it's the foundation of what you're building. That is a gem right there. I'm so glad I asked for a follow-up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I think it's great too. And you also feel good doing it. I think that's like, for me, that's also a big part of it. It's like, if you do the little things that also happen to help other people, like another great example of that would be like, if you go to a basketball game and you get a bunch of food, do you leave it there? Do you throw it out? Um, yeah. And you see how nice the people there are working there. Most arenas, there are some exceptions. At most arenas, you see how nice the people that are working there are. And you're like, I don't want them to pick it up. So I'm going to pick it up yeah. and I'm going to smile at them while I leave. Exactly. And exactly. then, and then you yeah, man. I, I, I love the way that you put it. I, I really like that analogy. Um, real quick, before we get into all the, uh, the sneaker talk and the entrepreneurial journey talk, right before we came on, you dropped a little bomb on me. You said that you have a few sports cards. I never told you, but I am an enthusiast, obsessed, like <laughs> I'm in love with it all. And you casually mentioned that you might have a few Jordans, you might have, how did, did you invest or did, were they given to you? How did that come about? Oh, no, man. I've been collecting since I was about five years old. Um, so before sneakers were a thing, it was just a commodity that you wore. Nobody collected sneakers. You collected basketball, baseball cards and comic books. That was what I used to do a majority of my time. Um, I would ride my bike. I was really big into BMX. So um, my, my first bike, uh, I was, uh, it was taken from me, but I had another bike that I loved. It was, a, it was a Huffy, yellow and black Huffy BMX bike. And I would ride every day to the baseball card shop and I would buy the whole box of packs because I could get them for 15 bucks back then. And you'll get, you know, surprise rookie. So I've gotten an Emmitt Smith rookie, a Jordan rookie, a Pippen rookie, um, Bo Jackson. I mean, you name it. Um, I, <laughs> Man, probably thousands of cards that I've collected since I was double digit thousands since I was about five. Um, had the good fortune of, you know, really getting into it before I would say it exploded, you know, because um, in my neighborhood, people love basketball cards and stuff, but they would only go and try to buy the ones that were already in cases and separate. So I would buy the packs. That was my that was my thing. Um, I couldn't, you know, go and play traditional sports. I was sick when I was a kid. When I was seven years old, I had a I had a blood infection called septicemia. So that's when I got really deep into comic books because that's most of the time all I can do is just read. So I would read comic books. I would get uh, you know Sports Illustrated for kids. I would watch NBA Inside stuff, and I would collect cards. So I knew the shooting percentage of everybody. I knew their height, their weight, their birthdays, where they came from, um, and I studied everybody. And I figured, man, if 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 Lucius Fox, the guy who can create gadgets for Batman, looks like me then what if I was able to create gadgets for Michael Jordan? I knew his stats, I knew his height, his weight, I knew his origin story, and I wanted to insert myself in his story. So I figured a way to you know, combine my, my passions of creativity and sports was, was through drawing. So I would constantly sketch the cards and try to recreate them, and then it turned from sketching the cards to sketching sneakers, and I love then the rest is history, yeah. That's amazing. Well, first off, congratulations, sir. <laughs> secondly so it went from drawing cards to drawing sneakers and then how yeah. so you were just doing that in your free time you were you know fine-tuning your craft you're getting better at it you know from a young age and then how did it turn from that to you 
I guess, reaching out or looking into uh, this actual career path? How did, how did one go to the next? Oh, man, it's a great question. Um, I'll tell everybody that design kind of chose me. I, I looked at drawing as a refuge. You know, I was a different type of a kid, you know, being sick, being um, what they call cognitively divergent, meaning I don't, I don't think like other kids. I have, I have learning differences. And I, I did okay at school, but socially um, I was quiet and kept to myself. And a lot of it was because I was sick and I was small and I looked different. Like my hair generally is completely straight if I grew it out because I'm, I'm mixed. Um, and so I would walk around with my mom and, and people would assume that she wasn't my mother. And so I kind of created a whole world in my mind that allowed me to feel safe. So drawing wasn't necessarily a means to an end. Like I didn't say I want to draw shoes and become a sneaker designer. I was fascinated with the object. I was fascinated actually with this object, the Air Jordan 4. That was the shoe that did it for me. This is an art piece that was given to me by, by one of my mentees. Um, and coincidentally, it's sitting right next to this thing that sits in my office. <laughs> so, oh my so, <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's it right next to each other. So I was able to look at it. But um, I would go and I would sit at Foot Locker and it didn't bother me. I would study the shoes because I figured that, you know, the closest access I had to the sneaker industry was a sneaker store. And I didn't complain and say I wanted to go to Nike. I said, well, let me figure out who to talk to at Foot Locker. And then from there, it kind of compounded where people would notice me. People would introduce me to sales reps. They would give me catalogs. They would, you know, call me the Nike kid. And that reputation followed me from middle school to high school. When I got to high school, I transferred in my senior year. Um, unfortunately, in my senior year, I was hit by a drunk drivers. So I had to give up playing sports. Um, I didn't have too severe of injuries, but enough to make me realize that, you know, um, I need to double down on drawing as my career path. And my coaches were the ones who actually exposed me to the concept of industrial design. They found an article in the Chicago Sun-Times, if I recall, that was talking about the auto show. And in the auto show, they generally, in Chicago and Detroit, they'll have like really advanced, um, you know, concept cars for North American companies. But this time, Toyota was, was showing the concept car for the RAV4. And they mentioned in this small little blurb, this guy named Chi Wei Lee, who worked at Toyota, designed this car, and oh, he, by the way, he interned at Nike. My coaches thought it was a good idea, and these are my track and field coaches, to, to call Toyota. So I tracked down Toyota's phone number in Japan. And mind you, I had been writing letters to Nike since I was a kid, so I was perfectly comfortable just picking up a phone or writing a letter. This was pre-Google, um, early days of the internet, so you still had to you know, print your address and your telephone number and your products for customer service. There was no, you know, talking to a chat bot. You had real people. <laughs> so I was fortunate. Almost <laughs> you know, sounds better, honestly. Yeah, yeah, it was way better, man. You pick up the phone, dial 503, and it's a human. Like, hey, my, my Nikes. That was, that was one of the hustles back in the day. Everybody knew if you got a high-end Nike shoe for like 150 bucks, that you can return it to Nike and they'll send you the latest shoe for free or they'll replace it with something that's equal or equivalent to it. Um, so that was the hustle. We would just wear our shoes and send them back or people would burst air bubbles and send them back. So, but I would call to get information for jobs. And those two things combined, I got a call back from the head of design at Toyota. I had no clue about international time zones. So I'm calling on a Friday, it's their Saturday. He calls back on our Sunday, their Monday. We get on the phone, he describes to me the process of getting into art school, the difficulty of competing with freshmen who are generally people in their 20s who come back and get another degree because they realize that design is their passion after they've already graduated. 
And here I am, a 16, 17-year-old kid competing with people who have a family and they're working a full-time job and they're going to school in the daytime. So the work ethic that they had was different. Um, you graduated high school at 17, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, I almost turned, I was a young guy. I was, I had just turned 17. Yeah, when I graduated. Wow. Um, it was, it was, you know, it wasn't because I was insanely ambitious. I just knew I needed to get out of Chicago, that I, I needed to see something different and that, you know, I wasn't afraid of the world. And I, I figured that I have to, somebody has to succeed. Why not me? That's my mentality. Somebody has to do it. Why not me? I never look at any of my limitations as limits. I look at them as gifts. Uh, so drove up to Detroit with my family and, you know, negotiated my way into school, um, got into industrial design and, and graphic design and had to compete, you know, turn design into my sport and the rest is history. But the one thing I learned through that experience is that no one is going to believe in you more than you do. So you have to, you have to believe if no one else does. It's called vision for a reason because not everybody can see it. And I had a vision for my life and I wasn't going to settle for what people told me they expected of me based on their limitations. Because had I listened to them, I wouldn't have tried anything. I would have been, you know, a kid with a learning difference from Chicago who just liked to draw pictures instead of a kid who wanted to design gadgets for superheroes who's been able to, to grow up to do that. So it's all a matter of how you talk to yourself internally. And, and, and not allow other people's limitations and stories to dictate how you show up. So for younger kids listening, what would your best advice be to get somebody on the, on the same page as you in terms of that, to get them seeing their own vision with all like, especially in today's day and age, with all the external, you know, yeah. things that supposedly put you down, but in reality should yeah. just push you further if you look at it the right way. Yeah, it's um, it's it's being uh, being. I don't even like saying a kid because I feel like people younger than me have the same responsibilities as I do now. So it's really not a matter of age; it's a matter of responsibility. Yeah, I know people who are like twelve raising their own siblings, so it's it's crazy. But what I can tell you is, don't get caught up in the noise. A hundred percent of how people experience you is based on what you do, not on what you say. Um, the cloud chase is essentially is, you know, a trick to place value in the outcome of a process, but no one tells you what that process is. If you don't know the process, and meaning the process of success, we talked about earlier, that discipline, that, that rigor, that organization, that focus, if you don't know the process and you want to skip to the end, then you basically forfeited your value. Now you're allowing the internet to control how you feel about yourself. And that's not safe because the internet isn't a person. It's, it's not even an emotion. It's not even a place. We give it power because we believe in it. It's very similar to the fiat system with money. The only reason we believe in money is because we, we've been conditioned to. But in reality, it's really a, a, an extension of the barter system and the gold standard when money was a receipt for giving someone gold or giving someone a physical item. That's where the value of money originally comes from. Now we believe in money and we think that piece of paper has value. It doesn't. It represents something physical when it used to be backed by gold. It's very similar to your dreams and goals. Everything you say on Instagram is like paper money. It means nothing unless it's backed by action. Everything you post means nothing unless you've invested in reading that book, listening to that podcast, reaching out to that person you're afraid to reach out to. So when someone doesn't see your vision, it's because they don't see you taking steps towards it. People will only see what you put in front of them, what, what, what you reveal to them along your journey. So it's less about what you announce. And that's what I tell people. 
I don't make moves. I make, I, I, I make decisions. You know, I don't make excuses. I make decisions. If you make excuses and you say, why me? And how's this happening to me? You don't understand that your suffering and your, your difficulty isn't for you. It's for you to teach someone else. So don't be so selfish to assume that what you're going through is for your own benefit. At times it's for you to be an example. I didn't realize at the time with the learning differences I have with, you know, the feelings of being weird and different and <clears throat> being made fun of for how I looked. I didn't realize that that would become my superpower because I can relate to so many people across multiple industries, across multiple cultures, because I know what it's like to be other, to be different. Mm-hmm. And that's been the reason I've been successful in design is because I'm supposed to become a quick expert and understand how to serve the unspoken needs of people without meeting them. And when you're a child that's an introvert, <clears throat> that's also you know ethnically mixed, you're essentially invisible to everybody. You know, I don't look like this person. I'm too small. I can't. So I was able to see the world. And now I've been able to put that into, into, into action and people support my, my work. But if you're young and you're starting out, you know, it, the greatest enemy you're going to have is your inner me. It's what you say to yourself. So be conscious of what you say to yourself. Be conscious of what you say about yourself out loud because that frames your reality and expect good things to happen for you because the only things that can happen to you are the things you believe can happen to you. So if you believe that you can succeed and you believe that you can grow, you believe that you're, you're more than what they say you are, it is 100% possible because the only difference between me and a lot of young people is my belief in work ethic. I just believe in myself, man, more than anybody else. And I will work my, my butt off to make sure that I at least try. I don't care if I, if I fail, but I do care about not trying. That's failure to me as if I never even try to pursue my goal. So that's kind of how I live my life. I don't worry about people laughing at me because most times the people who make fun of you are the ones who never even took the first step. And they're, they're making fun of you because they're carrying insecurities and fear, not because you're doing something wrong, it's because you're making them feel bad about themselves. But it's none of your business what people think of you. Just stick to yourself, you know, focus on what you're trying to do and be kind to yourself. And over time, good things will happen. And I feel like there's this funny um, system with how people who, who do have those feelings and who will, you know, spew some of that negativity online. There are like three phases. There's like the indifference, which is the first one. Then they see you're doing well. So then they start like hating because of their own insecurities. And then eventually they realize that it's too late and that you're gonna do what you're gonna do with, it, with or without them. And then they try to come back around. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it's regret, it's regret. It's so funny, which, but I think, you know, to your point, it's just why we all have to just lock in and focus on what we're doing instead of what somebody's saying about what we're doing. But to also listen to the audience for real feedback that is yep. Yep. that is put respectfully. Because I think then this is this is something that I've seen like from people giving me feedback in two separate ways. Like one way of feedback that I I don't respond to is when it's just like off the jump, you're bad at this, 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 this. That's it. End of story. Yeah. Like yeah. instead of like, well. And just making the person feel good too. Like even for myself, yeah. it's like, oh, well, I think, the, I think what you're trying to do is great. I think you just have to change this, 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 and this. And then it's like, oh, okay, cool. I hear you. Like you're not, I see where you're coming from, not trying to bring me down, but trying to bring me up as opposed to the, yeah. the, the, the former is just bringing down, or at least that's what it comes yeah. across as. 
So I think it's also just how, you know, we all talk to each other because it is very, it's a very fragile thing and emotions are so fragile. You just have to be like, you have to be very nice always. And I think it goes back to your uh, grocery cart story as well. Yep. Yep. And I, I tell people that as a designer, as an artist, you know, we, we, are, we are educated on how to provide critiques and feedback. It is a, it is a method. It isn't a behavior. Most people think providing feedback is a behavior. Oh, I see something. I should say something. It, it, you have to be trained in how to do it effectively because you have to also be trained in how to listen to feedback effectively. And, and how I explain it is this. What someone says to you is not them saying it about you. Someone says something about my design. They're not saying that about me. If they say, Jason, this doesn't look right. They're not saying that I'm not right. They're saying the context by which this conversation is happening dictates that I am allowed to say things about this product to make it better for the end user, which is the athlete. So in a critique, the first thing that if you're ever giving feedback as a leader, if someone's giving you feedback as a leader, this is what's been helpful to me. And I've been fortunate to work for some of the world's greatest leaders and see the world's greatest athletic leaders as my, as my you know, muse of people I've designed for. Um, the first thing is using language like, how should I interpret that? If someone says something to you that strikes you and it feels like it's a it's this jab to say, wait, I don't want to misinterpret you. Can you please explain what you mean when you say X? The reason I do that is it gives me a chance to calm myself down. The moment I hear something that triggers, you know, an insecurity or feeling like somebody's making fun of me or, or saying something negative, I don't, I don't react immediately. I sit, I digest it for a few seconds. I take a deep breath and I say, I don't want to misinterpret you. Can you please re-explain what you mean when you said X? And you got to practice that because in the moment when you hear something that hits you, it, you kind of get stuck. Like, what do I do? What do I say? And then you get into, I just need to defend myself. Uh, yeah, okay, I hear the feedback, but you know, I, let me, I'm trying. And it happens from time to time because you, especially from the people you love, because you think they're talking about you. The second thing is I tell myself often, and it's happening in front of me. It's not happening to me. So whatever's going on, it's not happening to me. It's happening in front of me. So I can observe that. I can notice my behaviors that I can course correct and I can breathe and, and center myself. And the third piece is when I'm giving feedback, I, I try to tell people my experience of you in this moment. I never say you should do this. I say, hey, my experience of you right now is this, 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 this. And I like that you did that. I wish we would have tried that. And I wonder if you do this, how would it be? And so it's a framework I talk about a lot um, that we do at Stanford. I like, I wish, I wonder. It's not passive. It's not cowardice. It's, it's the way to say difficult things without tearing somebody down. Because my job is to say difficult things 24-7 to people. That's literally my job. When I'm working with athletes or anybody I'm designing for or designing with, I have to break the bad news to them all the time. No, we can't make that. No, you can't do this. And so after a while, you see people feel like, dang, man all my dreams are being shot down. So I learned very early how to provide that feedback without having to take the, you know, the, the, the air out of somebody's balloon. I don't, I don't deflate people. So if you want to learn how to, how to really get into the art of a critique, man, really enjoy going to art museums, like take the free tours online with the Momo and the Met and, and listen to the curator and listen to the person talk about how to describe art because that's literally where, where critiques come from. Are people being critical about science, critical about art, critical about music? That is the basis of feedback is art. So when you learn it in that context, you become less 
you know, reactionary to hearing feedback because you know it's not you, it's the work that talk about your work. It's not you. Yes, the work is part of you, but it's not you, the person. It's, it's your creation that they're talking about. That's helped me tremendously. I've, I've done it with my kids. That's something I do for all youth in my life is I buy them museum memberships. I teach them how to interpret art and I teach them how to critique art. So when they get older and they hear feedback in school to them, they make the mental association with this is just like an art critique. They're just talking about my work. They're not talking about me. Because anytime somebody says something about my work as a kid, it, 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 it hurt me because I had fought depression since I was 10 years old. So when you're feeling small and sick and you're fighting depression and someone says something about you, you think it's you and you think, man, I messed up. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not worth your time. I messed up. After a while, I realized that it wasn't me. It was my work. And what they were saying wasn't trying to hurt me. It was how I heard it and how I talked to myself. So I've been free of that mindset for a while. But I try to explain to people that giving feedback is as simple as learning how to interpret art. It really, it really is the basis of how you critique. I think that's super valuable advice. Um, my, my one tiny, tiny, tiny sample version of that, which I try to remind myself of, is if I'm a couple minutes late to something, I, I forget where I saw this, but um, I've been doing it for the last couple of months now beca because of this. If I'm ever late, instead of apologizing, um, I say thank you for your patience. Mm -hmm. And it's so simple, but it's so, it makes all the difference. And they're like, oh, and the other person's like, oh, I did something great. And I'm like, yes, you did. Yes, you did. <laughs> you did something great today. While I was, you know, scrolling Instagram for five minutes too long. <laughs> you know, it's like. It happens, man. <laughs> so I, I think it's all about how you make the other person feel. Um, yeah. You want to make everybody feel special. And if you can always do that, the rest is easy. That's it, man. That's the secret. Um, so do you remember your first, uh, well, I, I guess the best question here is, do you remember the first time meeting, meeting your, your hero, MJ? Yeah, man. Um, my first, very first time was the first day of my internship. Um, I accidentally got on the elevator and went up to, cause, so Jordan brand, how it works when you got to Nike back in, back in early 2000s was they didn't, actually late 90s, early 2000s, they didn't have a formal internship process for designers. We were part of what was called um, Adrenaline. So it was the, the overall internship process. Right now, design, because of my, my time building a system, it's, it's individualized and it's specific to creatives. Back then, I was lumped in with salespeople and marketing. It was like, you're an intern, you're an intern. It didn't matter which department. So they would give you a map and you would have to go walk around campus to figure out where you worked. And every building is named after an athlete. So it was pretty fun discovering, oh, it's the Nolan Ryan. Oh, it's the Jerry Rice. Oh, it's the King Griffey. And so Jordan Brand was on the fourth floor of the Jerry Rice building, which was ironic because they have a Jordan building. And I went to the Jordan building first, assuming Jordan Brand should be in the Jordan building. Um, I didn't realize that they had moved. So I go to Jordan building. They direct me back to Jerry Rice. And I get on an elevator. I'm looking at the map, trying to find my desk. I get up to the fourth floor. And the door opens and they had just gave us this speech for like an hour about you do not wear hard bottom dress shoes at Nike. That is against the culture. No one wears dress shoes. You don't wear brown shoes. This is a sneaker company. This is our, this is who we are. And the elevator opens up and lo and behold, there are two pairs of 
beautifully handcrafted Italian dress shoes. And I'm looking down like, who in the world is disrespecting Nike? Like, this is my first day. And he just said, don't wear And I look up, it's Michael Jordan and it's Larry Miller, the president of Jordan brand. <laughs> and so I'm super nervous. I had never seen Michael in person growing up in Chicago. We couldn't afford tickets to the game. I only went to the game once because my dad got free tickets through, through his job and it was nosebleed seats. So Michael was like tiny, running back and forth. So I look at him in the eyes, and on, I immediately reached to hit the elevator door to pretend like I was at the wrong floor. But I, op I pressed the button that opens the door, so it was doing this instead of closing. And Michael reached his hand through and kind of like grabbed my shirt and said, are you the intern? And he has a really deep voice, and people don't realize Michael has like really large hands and long fingers, so it was like a, a movie where the hand just kept stretching. <laughs> it was tight coming to my face. And so he grabs my chest and I'm like, oh man, this is crazy. I just got touched by Michael Jordan. Like, ah, like my credit score went up. My jump shot got better. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is crazy. Um, and he's like, you're the intern. I'm like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm the intern. And, and um, yeah, I'm so happy to be here. And he, he asked me a question. He goes, well, how did you get here? And so in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, he's asking how I literally got to the fourth floor. I said, oh, well, I went to the Jordan brand building, Jordan building at first. I got lost. They directed me here and he was like, no, 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 no. How did you get from the south side of Chicago to here? He's like, I've been waiting to ask you that because I know where you grew up. What I didn't know, and this is how crazy the world works. My mom went to high school with his ex-wife. I grew up in a neighborhood where I would play with and around his nephews and never even knew it my entire life, never knew that they lived in my neighborhood, they were from my neighborhood, that my mom went to high school where I needed, had no clue. He knew my neighborhood intimately because his mother-in-law, you know, they were from that neighborhood. He knew the things I had to overcome. He knew my story. He had did his research and he was asking me, what was it? What did I do to push myself? Because Michael is the type of person when he sees something great in a person, he wants to understand it so he can apply it to his skill set. That's something I learned from him. Kobe's a good example of that. Kobe studied people and applied their elements, rest in peace, Kobe, to his game. Michael did that all the time. His favorite athlete, actually is um, Dave Winfield, um, the gentleman who played for the Yankees. That's Michael Jordan's favorite athlete. And if you know Dave Winfield's story, he was the only athlete drafted in all three drafts, right? And so Michael studied Winfield. He studied Bruce Lee. He studied Muhammad Ali. And he saw me as this kid who got out of this neighborhood that, you know, didn't have any connections to Nike and he wanted to know what did I do. And I explained to him it was because of you. I read comic books. I studied what you did. You know, they said you had a thousand jump shots a day to get better. I did a thousand sketches. I, I, I did what you did, but I did it for my sport. Design is my sport. 20 minutes go by. I'm talking my head off. I'm insanely nervous. He grabs me and turns me around. I say, okay, I got to go. He had to catch his plane. I'm like, Mr. Jordan, like, is there, is there anything you could tell me, man? Like, what, what advice? What, what should I do? to succeed, like, I, I really want to, I really want to make the most out of this moment. Mind you, I'm 19 years old. This has been my dream since I was a kid to get to the exact place I was at. And I'm standing there talking to the exact person that I wanted to meet my entire life on my first day. <laughs> I was overwhelmed with emotions. And he literally, it was literally, once again, like a scene out of a movie, the elevator's closing. And he looks at me and he says, and he mouths it, and I'm thinking, like, did he threaten me or did he encourage me? I was confused. But then I realized, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, my, Michael's always, you know, he's always in game mode. And like, anything Michael say, says to you, you take it like, that's Michael Jordan saying it to me. So he said, don't F up, you know. And I took that, I took that to heart. And what he was saying was, I had a great opportunity, not for myself, but for everyone else that was like me. 
for the people who felt small and insignificant, for the people who felt overlooked, for the people who felt other, I was representative of them. And it was up to me to leave a good legacy so that they didn't have to go through what I went through. That's what he was telling me. Don't waste your moment because it's not for you, it's for the next person. And I didn't waste my moment, man. I, I designed a shoot that went to retail and got hired into my internship and worked there for almost 14 years, uh, right, out, right out of college. That's an incredible story. Wow. How did you feel? Uh, how did you feel watching the, the MJ documentary during quarantine? Man, you know, for me, it was nostalgic, but it was, I, I honestly was more excited for my wife and kids. You know, my wife grew up in between here in Colombia, so she missed some of those years of Michael playing. Um, it also helped for her to watch that to understand a lot of my personality. You know, um, I'm very similar in the sense that I, 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 I play one way. And if people don't like to play the way I play, that's not my fault. Like it's for me, either I'm going all in and giving my best effort or I'm not doing it at all. I don't, I'm not yeah. a lukewarm person. I'm not, a, I'm not a halfway person. Um, and it's really, I know I always tell my wife that she's the best person that I've ever met. That's why I married her because I know when you're driven the way I'm driven to do the things that you feel you've been called to do in your life, that it's, it could be really difficult to be married to a person who's like obsessed with, you know, their dreams and their goals and, and trying to, you know, do the things they feel they've been sent here to do. Um, and that's kind of what Michael, Michael has. He has this, this internal determination that is really hard to describe unless you feel it and you've seen it at his level and then you see it in yourself. And that was the thing that over the years, she would, she would ask me and see like, why do you do this? And I would tell her, babe, you, you just don't understand. So this documentary explained a lot of like, my work ethic, a lot of how, you know, when everybody, I tell people, look, I work at night because my competition's sleeping. That's why. <laughs> because somewhere the sun is up and somewhere somebody's getting extra sunlight. So that means they're trying to get ahead of me. They're not going to win. They're not going to get ahead of me. I don't care. I don't care. Globe, I don't care. I'm, I, will, I will outwork anybody because I believe in myself because I deserve, and, you know, um, the chance to feel like I've earned everything I've gotten. So that was the experience for me, man, is, is having her see that, having my son and my daughter watching and say, oh, I get it. I get how you were inspired by this person. I get why you do what you do. I get how you carry yourself. I get why, you know, because he wrote me a letter when I was in grad school at Stanford and he was like, you, you did it the right way. You did it through hard work. No one gave wow. you anything. That's and, um Yeah, it was a blessing, man, because it made, brought me closer to my wife and kids because, you know, my kids weren't there when I was growing up, obviously. And my wife was living in another country and coming back and forth, you know, because she was born here and then fathers from there. And so she missed a lot of it and heard me talk about it. Um, so it was great, man, to, re to remember a lot of the stories. I had already knew about the documentary because uh, we've been talking about it with Jordan Brand for years. But to see my family experience it, it was a blessing. That's amazing. Do you have a favorite shoe that you've ever been a part of at Jordan? Yeah, the Dornbeckers. I love those, man. The Dornbeckers. Yeah, I was the first designer to do a Jordan Dornbecker collaboration. I did four of them. Um, like I mentioned, being a kid in a hospital sucks. You know, um, it's an indescribable feeling that I hope no one has ever had or has to have or has to experience with your own children or anyone in your family. And you know, when I had the good fortune of raising my hand to say, you know, I'm working on this project, because I didn't really ask permission, I just did it. 
I figured, well, they're going to do fire me for helping kids in a hospital. Like that, that, that wouldn't make sense. <laughs> um, and so I joined the project, you know, jumped on board, had a great team that allowed me to support that work. And, you know, I had, I had to work with all my heroes. I worked with cool people, tremendous athletes, great people. But when you go and you see a kid on their last round of chemo and you pull out a sample or you pull out a sketch and you literally see the blood and the color come back to their skin and you see them come back to life, and you see vibrancy in their spirit and this immediate like light that comes from their face and their smile. And you're like, man, this is way bigger than sneakers, man. This is, this is way bigger than anything I've ever done. So all the, the, the cool stuff, you know, having product on presidents of countries, having product on celebrities, that's cool. And that's gratifying for my ego. But what makes my soul feel good and what makes my heart feel good is when I worked on those projects to help children who honestly I'm laying there wondering if anybody's thinking about it because when you're in a hospital as a kid what's going through your mind is very different than when you're an adult you know adults are thinking oh I have so much stuff to do I just want to live kids are like man I probably never get to experience anything that I've heard about like I'm seven years old and wondering what it would be like to have a beard something as simple as growing a beard I recognize I might not ever have the chance to grow a beard I'm looking at all the guys around me in the hospital helping looking at their beards like wow I may not ever have a beard. <laughs> so you see oh, how a child's mind is very so Very nice looking beard. Thank you, sir. <laughs> yeah, that's why, that's, that's why I grow it out, because I, I remember like wondering, like, man, you know, will I ever get to drive, drive a car? Will I ever get to, you know, go to homecoming? Like these things you hear about that are just rites of passage. I, 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 in my mind, I'm like, I'll never get to do that. Um, so, so working with those kids at Dorn Becker, man, that's why Super Heroic as a company was even created. Because I, I know what it's like to feel small and to feel weak um, and to feel sick. And so that, that's, those are the greatest projects for me when I get to help people. That's amazing. So talk to me more. I'd love to, uh, to hear more and, and talk more about some of the stuff that you're up to now. Yeah, yeah. So um, we have to, you know, <clears throat> super heroic, you know, as a company, we had to shut down because of COVID and, and, and what was going on with terrorists. But effectively, I spent, you know, 14, 15 years you know, um, working on products for high performance athletes. And I've translated all that information and knowledge into creating product services and experiences for children. Um, you know, we had a very tremendous run. We were, you know, four and a half years old as a company. Most startups, you know, they, they fizzle out after the first year. You know, we ended up going four years. We were growing like crazy. Um, First, you know, brand owned and operated by a black person and a black designer. I wasn't sponsored by a shoe company. I owned the company and we were on the shelves at Foot Locker, which was a big deal for me okay. to see my shoe next to my former employer, knowing that I wasn't an endorsed athlete or a collaborator, but I was the operator of the business. Um, you know, we were the first company to innovate uh, for performance in a kid's space. And then we quickly saw the big companies follow us and, and try to create what we created. Um, Helped a lot of kids, man. Helped a lot of, you know, children and families who didn't believe that anybody would care about their type of kid because they wasn't athletic. Um, and it was phenomenal. And then in addition to Super Heroic, also have a company called Trillicon Valley, which is like the, uh, the agency that's not an agency. We don't solicit work. I don't promote anything. It's all word of mouth. We're kind of like the Wu-Tang of tech, as we, as we joke about. <laughs> it's like we have, a, <laughs> we have our individual businesses, but then we you know, come together on social innovation projects like Street Code, which is effectively almost like, think of it as like the G League for future talent in the tech space. Um, we Got groom it. them, we teach them how to code, we teach them how to design, how to animate, how to build video games. 
And then, you know, these are middle schoolers and high schoolers and they go on to, to start their own companies and build stuff. So once again, man, everything I've done has always been at the intersection of social good and consumer products. So that's, that's where I find my, my sweet space. I love that. Um, if you could now go back and, and give yourself any piece of advice early on, and this question also just applies to if you could tell anybody at that yeah. 18, 19, my age, if you could tell me one thing, you know, what, yeah. what would the best advice be for the business and entrepreneurial yeah. endeavor? I would honestly say, um, you know, that there's still a lot of good to be done in the world. There's still a lot of good. There's still a lot of good people. There's still a lot of hopefulness. There's still a lot of joy. There's still a lot of opportunity. Um, unfortunately, because of the way technology works and social media, a lot of the narratives that people hear, specifically people in your age group, are judgmental. Like, I don't look like this person. I don't have what this person has. I can't do what this person does. I don't have these many followers. I don't have this stuff. None of that crap matters. None of it matters. All, all of it is fake. You can't judge someone's highlight reel based on your day-to-day -day life. So understand that there's still a lot of upside for you. You haven't tapped out at 18, 19, 20 years old. You're not washed. You know, <laughs> a lot. Of, it was crazy. I talked to, to youth around my neighborhood and they're like 19, like, oh, I'm washed. I'm like, washed? You just getting started. Are you sick? Yeah. Look at my <laughs> friends. They have this. They have that. I'm like, man, don't worry about nobody else. You know, um, play your game. Play your game. You know, everybody's running their own race. We're not on the same clock. We're not on the same, we're not being judged by the same standard. We're only being judged by the standards we set for ourselves. So be kind to yourself. Know that you're worth it. Know that you don't have all the answers and the beauty in growing older is discovering that you don't know enough. And so you get to meet people who can teach you things. Be open to being a student. You know, do what's right when no one is looking. Don't say anything online that you wouldn't say to a person's face. Um, and never, ever, ever overpromise. Always promise and over deliver. You know, always under promise and over deliver. Because we live in an age where people who are double minded are often called out and they're often canceled from the culture. So be consistent in who you are and your behaviors and your language so that when people are talking about you and you're not around, they're talking about the true you. So that's how you control your reputation. Um, is by being a person who focuses on character. See, the problem is that a lot of people have been tricked to believe that reputation and character are the same thing. They're not. Reputation is external validation from your audience that they've heard about you. Character is who you are when no one's looking. So if you focus on doing things that drive, you know, value and create a mystique about you being a character or respect or honorable person or, or, or a person of high standard, then that is your reputation. But if your character is to be mean and belligerent, but then you pretend to be cool on social media, your reputation will be that you're fake. And then people eventually will smoke you out. And, 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 and then now you're starting to get docked or you're getting trolled online or people making fun of you and canceling you. So just be congruent, which means be the same person in every room you're in. You know, uh, you know uh, ask before you receive. And at the end of the day, just be joyful. Everything you dream of, you can achieve. I've literally done everything I said I wanted to do in my life. And it's crazy because people laugh when I said it. And people tell me, how's a kid like you going to do it? And I'm like, well, I'll show you. <laughs> I'll show you. And I've done it. So I'm very fortunate that I can say that, that I've, I grew up, I was the kid who grew up to, to, to live my dreams. And I know it's possible. So just don't believe the hype. You can live your dreams. Just, it just takes a lot of work. 
I love it. I, I totally agree. And I think, especially in today's day and age, there are unlimited opportunities available at all times. Like for as many people, just from like personal experience, as many people that I've seen, you know, who do the bad stuff, who are like not authentic to themselves and are chasing this like ego and imaginary status that doesn't exist, you can do the opposite and you can be one of those people who are doing it the right way and you'll be rewarded yeah. as, as so, you know, accordingly. Yeah. Um, where for every single person listening who wants to now follow you, if they don't already, where, where can people yeah. find you? Uh, best way is uh, Jason Maiden, J-A-S-O-N-M-A-Y-D-E-N um, on Instagram and Twitter. It's just my name. I used to have tricky handles and stuff back in the day, but it's just my name. Um, I figured I'd put value behind that. Um, I, I do respond to DMs as best as I can. You know, I, I'm not always the quickest because I get overwhelmed, but I try my best to uh, offer critiques and feedback on people's design work. So if you're creative and you're viewing any of this stuff or you're a person who's interested in my industry, just hit me up. You know, feel free to ask any question that you want to ask. I had a class called Shoe and Tell where I broke down the entire process of how we sign talent, we design for talent, we, you know, create value from talent. So if you're interested in learning more about that, I can share it. Um, but at the end of the day, I just want people to know I'm a real person, man. I'm a real person. And the, and the, and the reason why I support people is because I have two children. And I want them to be supported in the world. So I can't say that what I want for my kids, I, you know, um, you know, I, I can want it for them, but not display it in myself. Because I know there are people who might want to talk to someone like me. So like I said, my DMs are open. Reach out. Just be respectful. Don't ask for free shoes because I don't get free shoes. <laughs> Nobody does. It's, it's a myth. There's no such thing as free. Um, Milton Friedman, an economist, talks about this. If you're not familiar, understand that somebody pays for everything. So when you get something for free, somebody pay for that. Um, but I'm here to help, you know, so just reach out to me if I can. Well, I appreciate you coming on again, brother. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, I am one of those people who have benefited from talking to you. So thank you. Thank you, man. It's a pleasure, bro. All right, everybody. See you next time. Peace.